Hey, well, thank you, Kevin, and thank you to our kids. Can we thank our kids as they're going out for their involvement here? And for all of our volunteers who lead us in such an excellent way in uh, music and worship every Sunday morning, thank you so much for all that you guys do. Really, really grateful for you. Well, I'm Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point. Glad to have you with us this morning. If you're watching on Facebook Live, glad to have you watching. If you're listening online later, glad to have you doing that later. Before I get started for this morning, I want to tell you where we're going in the new year. Um, we're going to be starting a brand new series in January. It's called this. It's called Big Questions That Shape Your World. So if you ever have had interesting questions like, isn't religion based on faith, but secularism based on evidence? Or if there's so much suffering, pain, and death in the world, how is it that there's also meaning in a world like that? Or why is it that I can't live any way I want to as long as I'm not hurting anybody? If you ever had questions like that or wondered about things around contentment, meaning, satisfaction, identity, faith, evidence, religion, Big questions that shape your world, I hope, will help address some of these big questions that we just live by, sometimes without even addressing the questions, just assuming certain things are true about the world. And so for several weeks, we'll be together talking about some big questions that shape our world. So with that being said, here's where I want to begin this morning. It's Christmas morning, and so it's only appropriate we have some audience participation this morning. And what I want you to do is, don't worry, I won't have you call out to me, but I do want you to talk to your neighbor here for a minute as I begin. And I want you to tell your neighbor one of the best gifts that you ever remember getting as a child. Okay? And if you're still a child, then just tell them what you're about to get for this Christmas, okay? But just take a moment right now. This is the best gift that you have ever got, the one that you remember the most, all right? Go. Let's try to herd the cats back in. Let's try to try to herd the cats back in. Here we go. Good. Did you uh, you learn something about your neighbor for the first time? Yeah. Yeah, hopefully you had a neighbor. I know some of you aren't quite in that spot, but hey, I hope you had a good time there. So here's my, here's my answer to this question. I grew up in the Caribbean. My parents are missionaries. So in Barbados, where I grew up, we had one TV channel that only played a few hours a day. And on that TV channel, thankfully, and, and what a blessed life I lived, because they ran old reruns of the A-Team and Knight Rider while I was in Barbados, which is about all a kid can ask for, right? And so one of my favorite kids, one of my favorite toys as a kid growing up was this baby right here. This is the, yeah, let's bring it on for the A-Team van, the A-Team van and the A-Team figurines. I mean, if some of you aren't old enough to understand that yet, it is a sad life that you live, but fear not. You two, Google this baby, and you'll find some old, incredible videos. This is the way life was when it was awesome, okay? So this was my deal. I had the A-Team van. I had B.A. Baracus and Murdoch and Face and uh, I forget, anyway. So I would play with these guys out in my little, we had a kind of a back cement and a front cement in our house in Barbados. We didn't have a backyard and a front yard, but we had a few bushes here and there and a bunch of dirt and rocks and all that. So I kind of play with these guys all over the place, just what we had. And I remember, you know, they would get blown up, you know, 
they'd be flying across the yard and, you know, all kinds of things like that, ramping down into the dirt and, and mud and all. I had a great time with them. And I remember, because I loved them so much, I remember sometimes as a kid, you get distracted by things, you're out playing, and then mom calls you in for lunch, and then you come back out, and you can't remember where B.A. Baracus went, right? And you can't remember where Murdoch flew off to when he hit the, the whatever. So I remember specifically on multiple occasions praying, God, if you help me find them, I will do whatever you want. I'm serious, not just once. Like, I was so desperate to find these guys when we finally found them. And here's the interesting thing about it, as we reflect on these moments of, of great fun and great joy at, at, at uh, Christmas time, especially, in that moment when I'm like all in on A team and these guys, these action figurines, it is a moment. It is a moment of bliss, isn't it? It's a moment of peace. It's a moment where all the troubles are out of sight, isn't it? It's a moment where life is kind of captured in a bubble. It's artificial. It doesn't last because then I lose them. But when I find them and am playing with them, it's a moment where all of the pain and struggle of life is set aside. And I'm in a, a moment, even if it's just like a bubble of bliss for a moment. And for many of us, this is kind of what Christmas reminds us of. This season of Christmas reminds us of this yearning in our heart for this little, oh, this temporary desire for bliss. The only thing we can do is make it temporary. We wish we could make it more permanent. But even just yesterday, we heard a, 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 our doorbell rang, and, and it rarely rings. And so I went to the door, and, and I, I looked. I didn't see anybody. Then I looked down, and I saw one of our Amish neighbors. And she wasn't more than maybe three feet tall. And you wonder how she's allowed out of the house on her own. But thankfully, her five-year-old brother was supervising her behind her. <laughs> And she said to us, and she handed me this candy thing, and she's like, Merry Christmas to you. Right, and she gave me something that is, that is fiscally worthless to me, but what she gave me in that moment was incredibly valuable, and that is another moment, another picture of what peace on earth looks like. Another picture of peace where all of our troubles go away. And isn't that the longing of Christmas in general? I mean, isn't it that song, what, we wish you a Merry Christmas? No, wait, that's the wrong one. Um, <laughs> What's that? Greg would know. Where the song where it goes, and may all your troubles be out of sight. I what is that song? Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Thank you. Yeah, and now I've muted the point. But the point of that, that, that lyric, a couple times they talk about, and may all your troubles be out of sight, because that's the desire of Christmas, isn't it? That all of our troubles will be out of sight. And I'd like to say that this morning, even if you aren't someone who calls yourself a Christian, even if you aren't someone who says, I follow God, even if you're just here this morning because it's Christmas morning, I want to say we're glad you're here. We love having you hang out with us, love having you be a part of the family that you're a part of and, and engaged here with us, even for the brief time you're here this morning. Really, really thankful to have you here. just want you to know that. Thank you for making the time to be here. But no matter where you're at on your faith spectrum, your desire, for all of us, our desire is to find peace in this world. In other words, you don't want relationships that are full of conflict, do you? You don't want a, a, a financial checkbook that is full of holes that, that is short at the end of the month. You don't want to go to work and have there to be stress at work. You want to avoid those things. So over and over, no matter, again, no matter, this isn't even a faith thing, it's just a human thing. We are people who desire deeply peace. We want peaceful moments. We want moments of bliss, which is why at Christmas they're so beautiful. Which is also why at Christmas we recognize that they're temporary. 
that just like your homes may be filled in the coming days with family and friends and laughter and good times, some of you may also feel the effect when everyone goes home and you're confronted with the harsh silence of no one being around anymore and you're reminded of the temporary nature, the very things that we want to hold closest, this desire for peace. We aren't the only people who have ever desired this kind of thing. This is a human longing that has gone on for generation upon generation upon generation. In history, there's a nation called Israel. The nation of Israel longed for peace just like we do, just like you do, just like everyone always has. And we long to hold this fleeting peace permanently on this earth, and we struggle with it. In the nation of Israel, they had, we have in America the American dream. And I would say in Israel, they had the Israel dream. It looks different than the American dream, but it is similar in its desire. In the Old Testament, we read about this Israel dream, if you will, just like our American dream. This desire, kind of this picture of what a perfect life would be like without any trouble, that all your troubles will be miles away, that these little pictures, these moments of bliss would actually last forever. And in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 25, we read this. It's a very interesting picture into the history of Israel. And we read this, during Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. You may wonder, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Here's what is happening. During Solomon's reign, there was this picture of idyllic safety. And what they're saying here is that here's our picture of safety. Here's our hope. Here's a, a moment in our history where we look back and we can say that every man lived under his own vine and fig tree. Now, I doubt that every single man lived under a vine and a fig tree. But it's this picture of everyone was prosperous. There was peace in the land. What is happening in the nation of Israel is that they use this imagery of the vine as their, if you will, American dream. The vineyard was to Israel what our American dream is to you and maybe to me. The vineyard, the idea that, that you can own your own vineyard, you can have your own space, that you can have as a vineyard an economic means of sustaining your family. You can find shade and relaxation. You can have a job. You can be prosperous. You can be respected as long as you have if you will, this vineyard. Viticulture, or the work of the vine, was so important to the nation of Israel that it actually became part of their national identity. In fact, here's a coin from ancient Israel, and you can see that the vine became a picture, a symbol of their national identity. If you can see that right in the middle, forget the what looks like hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics around the outside, but the, the middle picture is a picture of the grapes, because the vine to Israel became synonymous with their national identity. It became so important to Israel, became so important to Israel that it was not just that they were people of the vineyard, that they ran vineyards, but also this, that they began to look at themselves and God began to look at them as the vineyard themselves, that the nation of Israel was the vine for other people. In other words, that other people would look to them and be able to drink from the life of Israel's faith that because of the relationship that Israel had with Yahweh, that other nations, other people would find life and protection just by coming to Israel themselves. That they would experience what it means to, to see a working family of faith 
thriving together. They would taste the wine of the delight of God through the nation of Israel. That Israel itself became a metaphor of the vine in great working order that was meant to provide safety, peace, and protection to all nations. The vine and the vineyard became the governing metaphor for how God saw the nation of Israel and how they saw themselves. But if you've ever had expectations placed on you, you know that they can be heavy and weighty sometimes. And you know, and I know, that we are never strong enough, good enough, or consistent enough to bear up under the most idyllic of expectations. And the nation of Israel stumbled and fell here badly. In fact, in the Old Testament, when God speaks about them as the vine, he regularly speaks about their failure to do the very thing that they were supposed to do. Here's what we read in Jeremiah. God says it this way, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt and wild vine? I planted you, I gave you the benefit of everything, but you've turned against me, your heart has turned. In Hosea, we read this, that Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. As his fruit increased, he built more altars. As his land prospered, he adorned his sacred stones. In other words, as things got better for Israel, they turned toward idolatry. They didn't turn to God. They didn't thank him for their goodness. They turned their cold heart colder into greater selfishness. This is why when Jesus introduces himself the way that he introduces himself, as we're going to see this morning, it is such a profound statement that he makes to the disciples who had grown up with this as their background. They were used to a nation of the vine, the vineyard, that they were the ones who would reflect to the world who God was. And Jesus comes, and here's what Jesus does. He steps into this space and he says, this temporary peace that you long for, when you play with your A-team trucks, when you see the kids at the door giving you candy, when you have the moments with your family at Christmas time, and you have moments of peace, that they are fleeting, and you know they are fleeting because suffering and pain interrupt your satisfaction. The temporary peace that you grasp, especially at Christmas time, Jesus has come. And he says, I'm going to offer you a permanent vineyard of peace for you to live in. And this is a game changer for anyone who wants peace and contentment and satisfaction. So I want to invite you to see with me how Jesus introduces himself. And he does it in the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. John was someone who followed Jesus, and he wrote down the account of Jesus and in John chapter 15, Jesus introduces himself in a very specific way that for the disciples was an absolute game changer. So if you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to John chapter 15 with us this morning as we explore Jesus' words to the disciples there. If you don't have a Bible, no problem. There's a Bible in the pew near you. You can grab that. You can also steal your friend's Bible. I'm sure they don't mind. Um, but that Bible's our gift to you if you don't own a Bible, by the way. Uh, but here we go, John chapter 15, and I'm going to just read verse 1, and I'm going to pause on it, because Jesus says this in John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine. My father, he says, is the gardener. Now, if you've ever been in church before, and you've ever heard this statement, to you it might be old news. But I am telling you, this is a powerful, powerful 
exchange that Jesus just made to these disciples. He is saying, the old way of relating to God, where the nation of Israel was the vine, that people were the vine between the, the, were the way to, to connect to God. He's saying, let me exchange all of that for a minute. Disciples, let me take some pressure off of you. You do not need to work to bring peace to this world. You do not need to work to be consistent enough to bring peace to this world, to create a vineyard where other people come and drink from the fruit of the delight of your hard work. They can see your righteousness and glory to God based on your work. Let me take some pressure off of you for a minute. Let me tell you, I am now the vine. I am the true vine, Jesus says, and my Father is the gardener. This is a categorical shift in how people begin to see who God is. That Jesus takes the weight of responsibility on himself and says, I am the true vine. I am that place of satisfaction. I am the place, that idyllic place that you all long for, that you wish you could have. The place of peace and prosperity and calm and comfort that we know is fleeting. The nation of Israel has failed to be the grapevine because we all fail under the weight of expectation. We all fail under the weight of rule-oriented living. We all fail under that, and Israel did too. But I am telling you, I am the true vine. Then let me just make it clear, he says. (laughs) I'm the one who can give you life. I'm the one who can give you peace and make it permanent for you. Think about me as the vineyard instead, and my father is the gardener. And then he goes on to say something 11 times in the next eight verses, through verses 2 to 10, and we're going to read them. But I want you to see as we read this, as I read this, he invites people to, invites the disciples to remain, or depending on your translation, to abide in him. And this shows up 11 times. I'll read it here with you, verses 2 through 10. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. Normal vineyard language. It's what you do in a vineyard. You are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, and you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and remain in his love. Over and over and over and over and over again, Jesus says, remain, abide, remain in me. Remain, 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 remain in me, no matter what. And he gets a little clearer as he gets further along into verses 9 and 10 that the remaining is meant to be in his love. I want you to remain in my love. Now, here's what's important to me. As I think about this, I ask the question, why would Jesus do this? Why would he call disciples, anyone who follows him, to remain in him? What is this call for? Why does he want this for people? And this is what I love about how Jesus communicates because he's very clear, especially here, about what he wants. Look at the very next verse. He says, I have told you this. I've told you to remain so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. 
I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Here's what I think he's saying. That if you have ever wanted joy in this life, if you have ever wanted a life abundant, if you ever wanted to experience joy more than a passing and fleeting moment, if you ever wanted to have joy, Jesus says, this is my interest for you. Like, I, I want this for you. I want you to experience the joy of life. So the reason I want you to remain in me is so that you can continue to drink from the vineyard. And that I'm going to be the one who gives life to you. Now, your role is to remain in the vineyard that I provide, and I will bring you joy. I want you to have a joyful life. And so if you have ever been introduced to Jesus, who has not necessarily been about your joy, but a bit about your duty, that I'm not sure you've been introduced to this Jesus, who introduces himself this way. If you've been introduced to a religion that requires and demands certain things of you and that is heavy on shame or guilt when you fail, then I don't know that you've been introduced to this Jesus who introduces himself this way and says, my interest for you is in your joy. Not in your shame, not in your guilt, but in your joy. And I want to invite you to remain in my love that you can have what you actually really want anyway. Joy. Completeness. Now, then I ask the question further. Okay, this is interesting. Now, how does one remain and abide in this vineyard thing, right? What does this mean to remain since Jesus said it over and over and over again? And I'm kind of confused on verse 10 because it seems like I'm supposed to keep a commandment, but there seems to be love involved. So I'm confused. If I read that again, if you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's commands. So there seems to be an obedience factor here, that remaining seems to be tied with obeying. Fair enough, and I think that's true. But obedient to what? What is it that Jesus wants us to remain obedient to? Look at verse 12. He says this, here's my command. Here's what I want you to be obedient to. Here's what I want you to focus your life on. Here's what I want you to obey. Here's how you will remain. My command that I want you to keep is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because your servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. And then he repeats it, just to be clear. This is my command. This is my command. Love each other. Love each other. So the command is love. Yes, the command is love. The command is to love like God has loved us, to lay your life down for the friend. Now, just to be clear what's happening. Jesus is taking this idea of the vineyard and the vine, this idea of kind of the American dream, this place of perfect peace, and saying, I'm going to take this idea that you have, I'm going to exchange it. Instead of a, a rules-based religion where you have to continue to create your own vineyard, you have to create a world in which everything is right, where your morality is high enough, where you don't look at the wrong things, say the wrong things, believe the wrong things, whatever the wrong things are, that you avoid all that and you build up your own world in just the right way. Let me take that pressure off you. You cannot create your own vineyard. It's just not going to work. 
You can do it temporarily, but it's not going to last. It didn't work for the nation of Israel, and it won't last for you. And it doesn't last for me. I, believe me, I try sometimes. Oh, do I try. And Jesus, let me take that pressure from you. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. You are the branches. Your role is to stay in my vineyard. And in order to do that, you have to love one another. And so let me exchange this weight with this freedom to love. And in that, this is a powerful, powerful problem that we will face. Because the command to love one another sounds really great, especially, by the way, at Christmas time. This is wonderful. Love one another. It's kind of hard to do with family. Sometimes it's easy to do with family. It's hard to do with people of the opposite political party, right? Yeah, I'll move on from that pretty quickly. But love is fine as long as I'm kind of already halfway inclined to love. But do we not, do we not, do we not, do we not sometimes substitute love for politeness? You ever do that at work? You ever do that at work with employees that you have, people that you work with? Instead of actually loving and engaging them, you smile and, and talk nicely with them, but I'm not really loving you, I'm just polite to you. Do we not sometimes substitute love for just being kind every now and then? Like, yeah, I will send them a meal, I'll write them a card, but I'm really loving them, and I'll substitute love for some other kind of lower level. Because what Jesus says is, I want you to love like God has loved you. And so he's saying, if you want to love the way that I love, you come into my vine for a minute. Come into my vineyard for a minute. Come into this vineyard. Drink the, the wine of this vineyard. Here's the wine of this vineyard. Self-sacrifice, death for someone else. The wine of this vineyard is the wine of courage. Here's what I mean by that. One of our greatest enemies, one of our greatest enemies of love is this, ambivalence. One of the greatest enemies of love is ambivalence. And ambivalence is simply this, is feeling torn in two. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever looked out on the relationships that you have and feel like, wait, I feel torn in two. I feel like I should, I should love, but if I love them, but what if, what if they leave me? How can I love them again? If I love them, but what if they die? Can I love again? If I'm going to love them, sure, but what if they're manipulating me? What if my company is using me for its bottom line? How can I love my boss when he used my work to push himself ahead? How can I love? How can I love when someone else is going to ultimately betray my good? And ambivalence puts you in this spot. You are torn in two if you are human at all, and our hearts fight this constant betrayal that you must face if you're going to choose to love. When Jesus says, love one another, he says, I want to invite you. I want to invite you into almost the, the valley of the shadow of death. And I want to remind you that the good shepherd is here to guide you. This is, by the way, where I feel my heart has been in the valley of pain. And looking again at my own heart and saying, can I and should I love again, if I'm honest? Can I love again? And, and anyone who has been through hard times asks this question. So when Jesus says, love one another, it isn't just a platitude. This is the key to the whole thing. Because when you are commanded to love, you are commanded to face internal demons that you don't want to face that turn you again to look at where is your peace ever coming from in the first place. And in that journey, in that journey, here's what I have found. Ambivalence, ambivalence is a safety valve. It's a way out. 
Ambivalence will provide me with safety. I can be polite to you. I can be kind. I may not need to love you because you may not demand that of me because you may also be ambivalent toward me. Ambivalence promises safety, but it never promises what Jesus just promised in verse 11, joy. And I will make a contract with ambivalence to say, if you can at least promise me safety, I am willing to sacrifice joy so that I will not be hurt again. Ambivalence is the enemy of love. And ambivalence is what you face and what I face. Every relationship that we are in, whether it's work or school or family, And so when Jesus says to us, love one another, this is my command, he squarely puts it at the center of that junction and says, come drink this wine that I drank. Come drink this cup that I drank. The cup of self-sacrifice. The cup that ultimately calls for and hopes for redemption. So here's where I'm at in this space. When you find your heart being threatened with ambivalence, when you think about how can I really love one another, when they might betray you, and honestly, they might. If you love, but they don't love back. If you love, but they leave. If you love, but they die. If you love, but they manipulate you. How can you do and put yourself and open yourself again? This is a big ask. These are the moments where we cry out to God. These are the moments where we cry out to God in our frailty and invite the good shepherd to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And we come to that vineyard and we drink the wine of that vineyard where Jesus, the little babe who was born on Christmas Day, went to the cross ultimately and considered himself nothing compared to the work of following the will of his father. And so Jesus stands here and he says to the disciples, if you want to find joy, if you want to find completeness, I'm the vine. Remain in me. And it's real simple. To remain, I just want you to love. But if you really want to get serious about loving, you're going to have to confront some things about yourself and your heart that you are not going to like. And that confronting will drive you to my vineyard. And in my vineyard, I will give you life. And when you drink of this wine, you can then give that life to everyone else around you that will see people who believe in redemption even though they live in a world of betrayal and pain. That, that is the hope of Jesus. He doesn't take away all of that pain, but he offers the vine. Offers for you and for me to find joy in drinking of what he has done for us. And so when Jesus came, he introduced himself to the world this way. I want to exchange all your hard work trying to strive for God. I want to be the vine for you. I want to be the vineyard for you. I want to be the place of permanent peace for you that you can find peace, that you can find joy. But it might cost you a little bit.
just like it cost Jesus. But it will deliver for you something that ambivalence never can deliver. That is the hope of Christmas. Joy, unspeakable joy, overwhelms my soul, never letting go. That is the hope of Christmas. That is the hope of the vine and the vineyard. Jesus is that vine. And if you have never experienced that kind of Jesus, I want to invite you today to consider him in that way. Merry Christmas to you guys. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the time in your word this morning and the time just to pause and stop. To recognize that we all desire peace, whether we believe in God or not, we all want it. We want peace in relationships, peace in our life, peace in our career. We want to be respected and honorable people. We want to have a good legacy. We want to have less conflict in our families, less conflict in our own selves when we look in the mirror. We want, we want peace. Oh, and we struggle with the temporary nature. We want to hold the little peace that we have tightly. We want to enjoy the moments of people knocking on our door, wishing us Merry Christmas. We want to enjoy the bliss of playing with our toys, our little kid toys and our grown-up toys that we have. We want to enjoy the blissful moments until we run out of that time and we need another one. So I pray that you'd help us not to play in our own vineyard, not to build up our own vineyard, and not to create a world where we're dependent on our own righteousness to find peace with you. We recognize the cost of living and drinking in the vineyard that Jesus offers. The cost to love one another requires a confrontation with the soul that is a painful journey that is hard to be on. But I pray for us. We'd have courage to press on through ambivalence. We'd have courage not to make a contract with safety so that we avoid love and joy. So I pray that you would renew in us and stir in us again the hope of redemption. The redemption offers us promise and this hope of life from death. And for those of us here this morning who have never seen Jesus in this way or experienced a Savior like this, I pray that you would open our hearts and stir our hearts again to see who you are and to have a conversation whether with myself any one of our pastors or with those who are close to us so father i thank you that you have offered joy unspeakable joy that overwhelms us through the life of your son jesus christ what a message and what a story for Christmas. I pray that you'd help us to live in light of it. In Jesus' name.